There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome back to the Titans of Food Service podcast. This is episode number six. Today, I welcome the president and founder of Tacticware Resource Group, Paul Fournier. We're going to do a deep dive onto what he calls his equilateral triangle of success. It includes leadership, culture, and strategy, and how the best of the best agencies and companies within food service leverage those three things to be successful. Let's jump right into it. Paul, I want to welcome you to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I'm thrilled to have you on today. You have accomplished so much in the food service industry, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Maybe we could start off of, how did you get into food service? Well, you know, that's, that's pretty interesting to me after all these years. You know, when I got out of college, I went to work for a uh, truck dealership in uh, Kansas, and at the time, they were uh, uh, one of the largest Mac and international harvester dealers in, in North America, and uh, very successful. And recession hit, and oil industry crashed and burned. And uh, I had a friend that worked for Lamb Weston, who was, as you well know, a, a manufacturer of French fries. And that was my start with uh, with him. Now, I didn't go to work for Lamb Weston, but I went to work for a Lamb Weston broker in Kansas City and uh, was there over 20 years and ended up building a lot of great relationships. But most importantly, what happened was that I observed a multitude of different management approaches, how they went to market, how they treated their employees, what kind of culture they had, what kind of leadership they have. And ultimately, their strategies on, on innovation, on managing uh, their distributor relationships. And after you work with 50 or 60 people over a course of years, you get a pretty good idea of what's effective and what isn't. And, you know, that was really the heart and soul of how I began my company uh, in 2007. But you observe things that work, that don't work. And many of the companies I work with today, you know, some are family-owned, some are corporate. Uh, they range in size from, you know, multi-million to multi-billion, uh, depending on who they are and where they, they fall. But I think from my viewpoint, you know, it's still about three things uh, that I've learned from the very beginning. It's about leadership. Secondly, it's about the culture. And third, it's about the strategy. And if you're really focused in on, on those three things in your business today, you can accomplish great things. And that's carried through, you know, for a long, long time. And I, I appreciate all the technology, but it's, it's a tool in the toolbox. It really boils down to people and, and their effectiveness and how they become self-managed as people. And to me, that's the difference in a really successful business or one that is simply getting by. I love Does that, that make sense, Nick? Uh, I think that makes sense to me. I love that a lot. <laughs> I know you have so much experience working on the broker side and now being on the consulting side. 
You've worked with many food service manufacturers and brokers, both on the food service and retail side, and then even outside of the industry as well. So your mark has been pretty remarkable, no doubt. You mentioned that the companies that you work with, they're anywhere between multi-million to uh, maybe multi-billion. But you mentioned that you work with family-owned and then also corporately-owned companies. What are kind of maybe some of the differences that you see between those two? Well, I think when there's uh, in a corporate environment, uh, governance is a is a big challenge. Uh, you know, there's boundaries uh, when there's uh, publicly traded companies. So, you know, there's quite a bit of difference between that and a family-run business. And when you have multiple shareholders, depending on what kind of corporate structure you have, you know, you're not just reporting to the sales manager. Really, uh, you may be reporting to a board of directors, or you may. Uh, be reporting to in this t- day and age to private equity, who are the, a lot of times the owners. So, you know there is a big difference. Family-owned business, you know, they make decisions a lot faster. They make decisions that uh, uh, they can live with. Both both have benefits, and um, I think it's all about. Again, it goes back to whether you're in a corporate or family-owned business. It still goes back to that leadership, culture, and strategy. And how you uh, how you maximize that growth, you know, through your your people. Sure. Let's go a little deeper on the leadership culture and strategy. Let's start with leadership. What are when you come in and work with a company? What are kind of the first metrics that you look at in terms of their leadership? Well, you know, um, let's start with culture first. I think that's okay. really an interesting place to start. Yeah. yeah. And one of the first things I do is is measure their corporate culture or their family culture. And the idea is that, you know, what really exists there? What kind of numbers exist? For most companies, culture is a subjective number. You know, I feel good about culture. I think it uh, seems okay. Where I go with that is a managed culture where we have metrics that really define in 10 areas the success of that culture. And, you know, uh, um, if you balance out culture, uh, leadership and strategy is like an equilateral triangle. It's only as big as the largest side. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, managers will say, you know, this is the best company I've ever been at. And they have a, a score on a, on a cultural assessment that may be a little bit challenging, you know, and you find out that the facts really aren't there. So addressing leadership from a, from a, a factual perspective rather than a, a uh, guess and a gut feel probably is is a lot better solution set to me. I would always rather know the facts and, and work to address that. You know, if you take that leadership and you break that down, most people want something that's that's understandable, and that means from a, a, a predictable or are leaders predictable. You know, do they employ critical thinking? What really drives that? Are they value based? And one thing I think that hasn't changed in the years I've been in business throughout my career is, you know, there's three things leaders just have to address, and it's, it's team, job security, and compensation and benefits in that order, in that precise order. And I think uh, for some companies, compensation is number one, where if you look at the most successful companies today, they're thinking about the employee too. Now, some might disagree if you've got 25,000 people, or 50,000 people, can you really take pride in that? I, I think you can. I think you can balance that out no matter what level you're at. 
and it's and it's very true that with larger companies you have to have systems and processes to get you there but i still think you can have a team-based company do tremendously well and understand that people and families are important and you really see that in the retention rates you know uh if you go to hr and you, and you have discussions with the hr team about accountability about retention and understand that um, great teams don't magically happen they're built you know there's there's no magic in this it's all about people but what the assessment does is give you a, uh, more than a subjective idea, it gives you facts and analytics to help say, you know what, we need to work here instead of maybe there. You know, a lot of companies will say, you know, we need to grow our sales team. We just need more. We need more sales training. When it kind of goes back to the leaky bucket where customer retention is so poor that they'd have to have a 15% increase just to get over the 15% attrition rate from their customers. So they've got to come up with 30% growth and year after year, that's virtually impossible to make that work. So it really goes back to a lot of other things other than sales training. But that also applies in production, logistics, HR, uh, financial, across the board in departments. You know, why are things the way they are and what limits a company's uh, uh, progress going forward? Um, sure. You know, my view has always been leadership and culture and strategy work together harmoniously. And if you have low scores on, on uh, culture, your leadership's probably struggling with solutions. And a lot of it has to do with communication, but some of it has to do with personalities and behaviors. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it, if you can go a little deeper on that cultural assessment, that's, that's very unique. You know, I haven't really heard of any other people talking about doing that, but I think that's very important. I think our culture or a company's culture can be a strategic advantage to them against their competitors. When you do the assessment, are you interviewing the employees? Are you interviewing the customers? How does that look like? And, and you know, what are some of the specific measures that you look at when doing the assessment? So the, you know, in, in um, uh, the assessment measures 10 different areas and, you know, from training to onboarding to, management, leadership, um, innovation. If you think about every employee in your company, they're really ambassadors to your to your uh, your customers and your suppliers. So if you think about the cultural assessment, you also have two teams in your company. You have a management team and you have an employee team. So you really have to break your assessments out into two different areas because one doesn't necessarily reflect what the other side will say. And it's really a balancing act, you know, understanding that. But some companies get into challenges because, you know, the information isn't transmitted down effectively to the employees from the management. But sometimes, you know, we create our own heartache because we really don't have any boundaries for our teams either. And we don't hold our managers effective. You know, when I do these uh, assessments, they're they're really an interesting dialogue uh, of uh, communication between senior management. And sometimes, you know, they're in tears because, you know, it's, it's not <laughs> always a great message, but sometimes it's a, a wonderful message, you know. And, but I think what's, what's helpful to, to understand is culture is not a subjective. You know, I, I, I wrote a book this last year, and the, and the title on that was Anonymous Cultures, the Silent Majority. 
And the reason you, you, you do online assessments is the vast majority of, of employees and managers, they're not comfortable having an interview like we're doing today. They're more comfortable being anonymous. They're going to share their thoughts and viewpoints in the anonymous phase of what they do. And, you know, it's really enlightening to think about, you know, my best employees, um, you know, giving me insight. A lot of times they know more about the business than some of the mid-management teams. And they're out there. They're doing battle every day. And what it also does is, is force management to, to really look at source versus symptom. Think about that. Source versus symptom. I've never and, heard that before. You know, um, for example, uh, revenue is a is not a source of conversation. Really, it's about how do we build revenue. We met, met uh, revenue is a measurement of success. You know, but if we go back to the source, it still goes back to leadership, culture, and strategy, because right. that's the source of the revenue. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It totally does. Maybe dive a little deeper down into the source for a symptom. How do you break out the two and maybe describe it a little bit more in detail? So if you think about, about the assessment, you know, um, higher scores in the assessment process mean that the company is more strategic typically for me. You know, I design my own questions because they need to be actionable. They need to be accurate and they need to be realistic. And that's why I break it down into the 10 areas. But, but typically, the responses come back from employees, in, and there's really three challenges there. Equal accountability. People are not equally held accountable for their job, uh, responsibilities, and duties, and their performance. The team or lack thereof. And then finally, you know, predictable communication from, from management. It's always interesting. It, it typically always follows within those three, you know, the scoring. Now, the rating scale that I use, for example, is uh, from zero to 100. I keep it very simple in each area. Mm -hmm. But what you find is that companies that score between zero and 70 are typically uh, task-based. You know, they're, they're more interested in, in uh, tactical moves rather than strategic moves. As they move from the 70s to the, to the 80s and 90s, they become more strategic. And when they become more strategic, they're more objective-driven than task-based. And you see different uh, uh, accomplishments. You know, they're able to multitask. They're able to better mitigate risk. They're better able to understand the behaviors of certain teams, why those things occur. They're also able to make long-term plans. So instead of the typical, you know, what, what are we going to do tomorrow versus one year, two years, and five years, and 10 years. So as they become more strategic, they're able to address those issues. You know, it's, and it kind of goes back to, you know, is it ready, aim, fire, or fire, aim, and, and go through the uh, exactly. uh, dysfunctional processes that normally <laughs> occur. So, you know, it really is a, is a different outlook. And, the assessment gives us benchmarks. So if we're doing, uh, you know, if I have a really challenged company, I might do uh, organizational assessments every six months. And really what that is, is establishing perception. And perception mm -hmm. is what 
the employees and the management team feel about the company. They feel about the customers and sometimes what they feel about suppliers. Now, with that said, perception changes. It's like, like the wind. It can change good or bad depending on, on the environment. So if you have a really toxic environment, your culture is going to be challenged. If you have a really facilitating uh, environment, culture is going to probably be higher. And a lot of that comes from just good listening skills on the management team and then doing something with it. It's kind of res- it's a responsibility of management to walk the talk, to say, hey, this is where we're going, and explain it to the employee teams, you know, why it's invaluable and why it's important. So the cultural health of the company is really determined by the employees and the management. That perception is a lot of times based on their vision, mission, and core values. Because the vision, mission, and core values create the boundaries of behaviors within the company. The vision sets out where are we going. The mission is how we're going to get there. And the core values state how are we going to behave with our customers, our employees, and our suppliers, and our society. So... By setting those boundaries in place and really understanding those, we take our, our thinking process to a different place. It's more critical thinking in my view, but it also says to every employee, you're valuable, you're an asset, you're not just a number, and we need your input. You know, uh, when I first started doing the assessments, Nick, it was uh, numerical. And then I layered in some essay questions, and you would just be astounded at some of the things that, that managers and employees say and they'll just tell you the truth after they trust you i make mine anonymous i don't share who said what but i share what they say and the idea is it's not about holding somebody accountable in this it's about getting better it's about leading your company to different opportunities i read a book recently called they ask and you answer and part of the premise of the book was around you know, your employees and your customers, they're talking about you and are you listening? It's very important. I think, especially as leadership, it's easy to get caught in your day-to-day and I think it's a mistake that a lot of people make or, or not necessarily a mistake, maybe a trap where they get caught in the day-to-day and they don't focus on the strategic part of their business, you know, which might net you that zero to 70 score that you were mentioning. When you come into a company and they're, in that range of zero to 70, what are some of, are there quick tricks or tips that they can do to bump that 70 up? Or is it more of a longer term play? You know, uh, every company's on a different timeline. There, there isn't established a rubber stamp to make this work. You know, some, a lot of companies today have been in business 100 years. You know, you think about it, it took them 100 years to get where they're at. Any consultant that would come in and say, "Hey, I'm going to fix 100 years of dysfunction in you know, you know, six months," is, is obviously not being truthful. But I'm more into how do we how do we facilitate and modify cultures and leadership for the long term? You know, I think think a lot of people make uh, unsupported uh, promises and they, they just don't work out, and it doesn't fare well for the consultant. But long term, it's it's more about Understanding your business. I think a lot of companies in senior management, and depending on the size of them, are removed from the customer relationship. 
one of the one of the most more interesting things is when you line up assessments and you look at the employees, the management, and then you do supplier assessments and distribution assessments. You line them up, and they all have about the same message, right? You know, Very and that changes the tune of management. It makes them more aware. It illuminates challenges, but it also illuminates uh, opportunity. And you balance those out. And how do you get better? Well, a lot of times our our suppliers are really tuned in. You know, are you the first? company they go to for innovation with innovation or you the last guy because your purchasing departments maybe not on the up and up you know do they really have great systems and and policies in place or are they so difficult to work with uh, they don't bring you an opportunity in the brokerage world you know it's about creating value if we create value it starts with our people you know, if, if a manufacturer comes in and works with a broker and it's just a wonderful day and you're calling on high value uh, operator accounts, multi-units, that's considered a great day. If you come in and, and, and the manufacturer's rep comes in and says, you know, we went out and called on, you know, eight small accounts and our revenue probably is not going to be great over this. They're questioning why they have you. And you know, we choose our customers, and it starts with the culture of the company. It starts with the leadership, really IDing what's important to them, what's the priority. And leadership uh, sometimes has to make hard decisions because sometimes employees, sales employees, are not driven to call on those larger accounts. And those large strategic accounts are the ones that can ultimately drive the business forward. Now, you mentioned... You know, on the manufacturing side, are you first or are you last in terms of, you know, your supplier working with you versus your competition? And then also on the broker side, when a manufacturer comes into the marketplace to do a market visit, you know, a lot of times we may not know that they have an issue or they may, we may not know that the trip was really good or that our service level is very high. Do you do an assessment for the your clients or the companies that you work with, their customer base? You know, um, um, I think the manufacturer and broker need a direct relationship and communication. And, uh, you know, line, it's, it's um, important for the broker to assess the relationship with the manufacturer every time they come in the market. You know, if you think about the manufacturer, they're, they're sending in their regional sales manager into say LA and by the time they have airlines, transportation, hotels, the whole bit, they've probably got 1500 to two grand tied up in a daily cost. Now, if they're not out making effective calls, whose responsibility is that? Well, it starts with the, with the sales agency. You know, they need to guide the manufacturer to those best accounts. And to me, I think I've always been an advocate that the broker should assess that relationship with the manufacturer. And it can be as simple as an email saying, did we do a great job or not? Were we on task or not? Was it strategic? Are you satisfied? Because our role as brokers is to create value with the manufacturer. And honestly, if I were 
if I'm a manufacturer and I'm, say, a national sales manager, and I send my team in to make these uh, presentations in a market, and they come out with, uh, with uh, very little, I'm questioning the effectiveness. I'm questioning the value. So I think it's important for, for the broker to toot their own horn, but do it on facts. We solve these issues. We accomplish this. And if we're always doing that, we're going to build a dynamic relationship with that manufacturer. Now, here's part two of that. Okay. Okay. Everybody wants to expand their product list if you're a manufacturer. Of you know, And that's where that innovation comes in. So if, if their goal is innovation and they send their representatives into your market and you have a great day calling on large accounts that you have a relationship with, your success with innovation is probably going to be a lot higher, a lot greater than if you were to take them to accounts that are cold calls, that are people mm-hmm. you really don't know. In fact, the numbers statistically are about 30% sales effectiveness when you call on strategic accounts you have a relationship with. As, as opposed to that, if you cold call on people and it's just Joe Blow up and down the street, it drops down to around 5%. Mm-hmm. So there is effectiveness there. And if you look nationally at a lot of manufacturers, they'll put out you know, multitudes of uh, innovation and the vast majority die. You know, They don't go anywhere. Where if we chose those st- strategic accounts to begin with, we would have had a great relationship and we probably would have been successful in doing so. You know, you know, in, in, in the broker side, if you think about it, it's kind of the 95-5 rule. 95% of your commissions are tied up with 5% of the products for most lines. If you look at the manufacturer, the same thing applies. It used to be 80-20 where, where 80% of the revenue comes from 20% of the products. For a lot of companies, that's tightened up. A lot of companies have accommodation items that may be co-packed. You know, they may not have the equipment or logistics to handle that. But whether you're a broker or a manufacturer, by spending your time on those value-added, those uh, core foundation items, you're able to really impact your commissions, but you're also able to satisfy and create value with the manufacturer. So it's a double-edged uh, plus for everybody, you know, to Definitely. do that. On the innovation piece, when a manufacturer goes to create a new item, of the manufacturers that you've worked with, what do the successful ones do to introduce that new innovation into the marketplace? Or how do they get their brokers to go in the right direction? And what does success look like to them versus others who struggle to introduce new innovation? So, you know, innovation is more than just taking an item and, and making it different than what you already have. It's tr- if it's truly innovative, you know, you're going to change the world with it. And again, it goes back to where are you going to go with, with that? Now, some organizations are not strategically driven. You know, age sales agencies are not strategically driven. They're more task-based. And they really don't focus in on the idea that strategic accounts can buy more than a B or C account. You know, quality manufacturers, and I think that's why, you know, some manufacturers have chosen to go direct. They want those relationships out there. Mm-hmm. But innovation is the lifeblood of a manufacturer. You know, it allows them to stay relevant. But it's also 
the lifeblood of a broker to remain relevant with the manufacturer and the strategic account. And how would you, you, you've mentioned the term strategic account. How would you define what a strategic account is or maybe who a a strategic account would be? So if you looked at in in, uh, food service, if you looked at all the classifications of strategic accounts out there, Mm -hmm. you would have multi-unit accounts, restaurants, you would have hotels, casinos, you would have uh, schools, healthcare, you would have prisons, for example. So you would pick the top 10 or 15 top targets in those channels and identify which ones make sense for you. Now, most people are challenged today with hiring enough people and retaining them. The fact of the matter is that if we are calling on the right accounts, we probably need fewer people. We need Mm -hmm. to expect more out of our people by calling on the right accounts. And I think distributors help push that uh, opposite of what the result is over the years by by maybe having you as a broker be the sample logistics company out there. You know, you're delivering samples when to see accounts when really we could have hired uh, uh, a cartage service to deliver that for a third of the money. You know? <laughs> that's very true. So that's, that's really what it amounts to. But the truth of the matter is that if, if we're calling on strategic accounts, it ups the game. It changes the perception of the manufacturer to the broker. But it also creates a relationship between the manufacturer and that strategic account that is based on profitability rather than cost. When I first started in the food service brokerage industry, I felt that the industry had trended towards what does your distribution, especially your broadliner relationship, or relationships look like. Do you feel that has shifted more towards the strategic accounts or large impact operators, whatever you want to call them? Do you feel that 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 has moved over or it's just, or or not fully yet? Well, you know, the brokerage business is, is an interesting business from the standpoint, you really have three customers. You got the manufacturer, you got the end user, and you got the distributor. And I can tell you as a broker, I never once received a check from a distributor. And the fact is that the manufacturers write the checks, they expect results, and if you're gonna retain them, you need to call them the right people. And I think that's where, especially during the pandemic, a lot of relationships ended because people moved on or changed Mm -hmm. jobs. And I think today there's a great lack of relationship building out there amongst sales agencies with the correct uh, accounts. I think, I think uh, people re- have reverted back to what they did 20 years ago and the fact that they called on everybody when they should be, call- be very selective on who they call on. And that's not to say we don't call on them. It's that we, we don't make personal calls with them. We will send them samples. We'll send them information. We can talk to them on the phone. But do we personally go out and sell them? No. We're in, we're in front of those strategic accounts or we need to build those relationships. And I, and I would ask you the simple question. If, if I'm in front of a strategic account and I'm there once a year, do I really have a relationship with them? Uh, yeah, probably not. Probably not. But if I'm touching them 
two to three, maybe four times a year with mm-hmm. uh, personal contact. I'm doing e-commerce marketing with them. I'm communicating with them. Their chances of respecting me and valuing me as a salesperson is dramatically different. They're, they require trust. They're going to buy from somebody they trust. And they know that, for example, if they go to Portillo Sales, they know they can trust that you're going to take care of any challenges they might have. They're going to be happy with that <laughs> But that's, that's just the way people think. Right. You know? It's like with a manufacturer, Nick, if they have a customer service department that is just outstanding, the customer knows that the product's 100% guaranteed, they know they're going to get results, and they know they're going to get compensated if there's a loss. Mm-hmm. Now, that's trust. And that's, you know, I have clients that have had the same customers for 30 and 40 years, and you go, wow, that's a long time to have trust. But essentially, that's, that's why they're successful, is their customer attrition rates are so low, maybe 2%, mm-hmm. maybe 3%, as opposed to 10, 15, maybe 20% attrition rates. How do you, so in terms of getting to more of the 2 to 3% attrition rates, you know, in the history of my company, we've had years where we have pushed maybe 10 to 15% attrition rates. I think it had a lot, of do, a lot to do with being newer and not really having our footing. But what about companies that are well-established and they're still dealing with high attrition? What are, you know, what are some of the missteps that they're taking to have that happen? Well, you know, with, without getting specific, to me, it, it goes back to what, what kind of relationship do we have with that, those customers that we're losing? You know, uh, are we really ambassadors? Are we really having a conversation? You know, I think, and I use the email and I use text and I do all these things, but there's nothing better than picking up the phone and calling somebody today and saying, where have we dropped the ball and why? Hmm. You know, a lot of times we use technology as an excuse when we should just pick up the phone and say, you know, you're dropping us, but why? I want to learn from this. And you know what? If I can apologize and start over, I'll do it. But, you know, if you look at attrition rates and it's a strategic account, most companies need to wake up and say, look, it's, it's not the customer's fault. It's our fault. Mm-hmm. We have challenges. And maybe it's, it's a quality issue, but maybe it's a logistics issue, you know, or a third party issue. But let's find out the facts. Let's understand source versus symptom. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of goes back to, you know, internally it can be, well, why are all these employees leaving us? You know, is it, mm. oh, these we're just hiring the wrong people. But maybe we have a manager that's, that's not facilitating the success of their people. On the employee retention side, because there is attrition when it comes to employees, we'd like to hold on to all of them. Some companies do much better than others. What is an attrition rate that you see of the more strategic companies who have that equilateral, equilateral triangle of leadership, culture, and strategy versus those that maybe lack and are maybe more tactical? How, how does that attrition rate look differently uh, between those two? Well, my view and, and has always been that you start off with a great job description, Nick. If you, if you know what you're hiring for, 
and you know the top three or four key indicator, key performance indicators that person's going to do, you hire based on the ability of the applicant to achieve those, those key indicators. That's the first step. The second step in this is the idea of hiring people based on gut feel, I think mm -hmm. is, a, is a huge uh, challenge for a lot of companies. I think you have some greatly experienced people out there, but that shouldn't be the first step. The first step should be understanding that everybody's different. Everybody brings different skill sets to the, to the table. They bring uh, different knowledge levels to the table. And here's the interesting thing. They all travel at different speeds. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of times that attrition comes from, from how people learn. And people learn normally three different ways. They're visual learners, they're auditory learners, or they're kinesthetic learners. Now, if, if your training process is all online, it's all about visual learning, Mm -hmm. And you have someone that's a kinesthetic learner, and a kinesthetic learner is the person that needs to touch and feel and romance that product. You've lost them. And I've studied this for a long, long time, and the society's really broken up into three different levels. Mm -hmm. It's a third, a third, and a third. And there's, you know, some, some people that can learn with all three. Sure. But if your training process doesn't embrace all three learning approaches, You've lost them at the very beginning. You know that's a great point. And if the attrition rate is high, you start back with what's the source, and the source is how do people learn? You have to establish how people learn. Mm -hmm. How can leadership establish how somebody learns? How can they find out if someone is visual, audio? Or was the, would you use the word kinesthetic? Kinesthetic, and it's touching. Well, you know, you generally ask the person how do they best learn, and you'll see okay. the schools today were very poor at addressing the kinesthetic learner's needs. And you see some of the best salespeople in the world that are kinesthetic. Mm -hmm. They generally have a lot more empathy toward people. But they require multiple ways to learn. I have a son who was a kinesthetic learner all through school, he was challenged. And now, I don't know what happened, but his brain rewired and now he's, uh, he's more visual and auditory and he's got a great hybrid balance of all three. Mm -hmm. But that's what started me in thinking about how people learn and the value of that. And then you start applying that to, to sales departments, to production uh, departments. Why, why do people, some people grasp what's going on and others don't? You know, yeah. why, why does the timeline vary between different people? Mm -hmm. And a lot of it has to do with, with management's lack of knowledge about how people learn and understanding that if I show people how to learn and, and, and I understand the value it brings, I'm probably going to retain more. Is it perfect? No. The, the other side of that attrition, which you're talking about, is that when you look at your vision, mission, and core values of a company, Mm -hmm. And the employee gets there and they find out that the company is not even close to that vision, mission, and core values. They're going, I'm going to move on. And that's, that's really going on in society today. Because yeah. uh, that's why you see some turnover, uh, you know, just excessive because 
the company really is a walk in their talk. They're really not mm-hmm. uh, engaged with the employees. They they come, they fail, they rehire, and it's just a revolving door. Whereas right. with, with my clients, we look at why are people succeeding, and then look at why are they failing. You know, what does that have to do? And it starts at the top. You know, it starts starts with the senior leadership, the C suite. It starts with understanding that it's not a perfect world, but if we want to hire quality people, we have to do a good job of selecting quality people. Yeah, that's very important. You mentioned you have a book that you wrote, Anonymous Cultures, The Silent Majority. What is your book about? Or does it really go into kind of these, uh, the different topics that you've been talking about? You know, it's available. I had never written a book before, Nick, and I took all the things I've worked with with uh, <laughs> uh, companies on and learned it's over the years and kind of put it in this book, and it turned out really nicely. It's available oh, on great. Amazon. Okay. It has, uh, it's, it's pretty involved. It's uh, uh, available on audio or Audible and also on Kindle. It has uh, done pretty well. Could it do better? Yeah. No question about it. But for my first one, I thought it was, it was pretty interesting. The idea is that you, you uh, look at leadership strategy and culture, and they all play on each other. When somebody tells me that they're not successful in innovation, they're kind of stuck mm-hmm. in a rut, well, it goes back to those other two topics. And right. to me, it's about taking the fundamentals and getting it right. You know, this is a, a copy of it right here, and it's inverted. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a thought-provoking book with a lot of good ideas. And I have another one coming out in 23. Uh, it's yeah. based on I've, I've written a lot of articles and papers over the years. And it's really an uh, uh, aggregate total of all those. But writing is an interesting thing. It forces you to really look at yourself and what works and what doesn't. And yeah. I would tell you that everything in this book I've used and done uh, I'm not an academic. I went to Kansas University and got a degree and enjoyed political science and found out it had no value unless I wanted right. to go to law school. <laughs> so it's really about, about understanding people, the psychology of people, how they learn, but what, what, what helps people get to a different place. You know, and the managers that think they can motivate people, I think it's a fallacy. Uh, you got to create an environment where they're self-motivated. They're self-managed. And I use that term a lot, self-management. And self-management means you have to do four things consistently. You've got to plan, schedule, execute, and report. If you do those things consistently, you're self-managed. Now, if you only do three of those, you're partially self-managed. Right. Oh, I love those. I think every leader out there probably, you know, is wants employers or team members that are self-managed and they might be even a little bit of a holy grail to find somebody like that, you know, a really self-starter, someone who's uh, not just has the desire and the want, but also the capability and the capacity to be self-managed and, you know, so that you can drive the company forward. I think that's really impressive. Now, when it comes to your book, I, I mean, kudos to you for writing that one of the reasons I started the Titans of Food Service podcast is when I started out in food service, my dad, also my business partner, said, Nick, you need to get out there. You need to drag the bag, which means you got to go door to door to different restaurants with, with a bag of products and just kind of get, get the feel for it. Learn by, by doing. 
And he said, there are no books on food service. You, you can't read a book and be on, on how to be successful in food service. And so now, seven or eight years later, I decided, you know what? I want to create content for people that maybe they're new into the industry or maybe they've been in for a while and they're trying to move up the, the corporate ladder or they're trying to start their own business in food service. I wanted to give as much value to those people as possible. So, you know, you writing this book, I, I just have to commend you. We need more resources out there, especially in the food service community. And because I think when we learn from one another, we grow uh, as a community. So kudos to you. And, and uh, I appreciate you you taking the time to write that book and, and putting your thoughts into it. You're very profound and you, you have incredible ideas, uh, very well-spoken. And I think you think a lot differently than most people do. I, uh, kind of, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people, especially leaders get caught in their day-to-day and they don't take a moment to take a step back. And, and I'm, I'm guilty of that myself, you know, take a step back and, you know, view their business more holistically as opposed to just in the trenches every day. If you could give advice to a leadership team out there, whether it's a food service manufacturer or food service broker or retail broker, on one thing that they should really be focused on or should be doing differently, what advice would that be? A lot of companies started off as entrepreneurial businesses, you know, and they a lot of times quit doing what made them successful in the beginning. And it really is about going back to the basics and saying, you know, we need to call them the right accounts. We need to show those accounts the right products. And we need to construct what kind of customer we want to call on and stick with it, you know, and that's called a model. But if you think about the entrepreneur, a lot of times, you know, I have people call me all the time, you know, they're, 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 they're a startup, you know, they've got some seed capital, they're, they're doing stuff, you know, and, you know, I always try to give them a great time because I remember starting off when I was going and, Mm -hmm. you know, hard lessons can be very painful, uh, both financially and emotionally. And uh, yeah, I've learned from my lessons. I just wrote a paper a while back, Fewer Teachable Moments, and uh, it's on my website. But, uh, you know, if, if every time you do something and it fails and it's, it becomes a teachable moment, you send the wrong message to your employees. And that's where I think that you have to take the time to really maybe not move quite as fast, but think the consequences. You know, think about what could happen. What's the worst case scenario out there? And maybe not do it. Because your employees are looking to the, the management, the senior management, particularly the owners, of leading them to a path of, of stability. You know, the vast majority of employees want to get up every day and go, this is the best place in the world to work. This is great. I make a good living. I'm safe. You know, I, my job security is high. And I'm held in esteem by management. Now, some, man, some, some people listening to that may say, well, that's a little naive. When I would, I would say those people are great leaders because they facilitate the success of every subordinate in their building. You know, that's how you build a great company. You know, you allow people to uh, uh, grow and learn and you give them every opportunity. People aren't suddenly, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's, they're not suddenly failures. They had a progression of fails, you know, and it's really up to management to step in and say, look, 
what's going on here? But it's not so much for that employee, it's for all the rest of the employees that observe that. And whether you're, you know, you've got 25 employees or 25,000 employees, there has to be systems and processes to help make that successful. Definitely. You know? and, and, you know, you can't run a large organization without having boundaries. Everybody has expectations. But here's the thing. If it's not a safe environment, it's toxic, or you have unequal accountability, people read through that in a second, particularly the younger generation. And you know what? I really don't blame them. Right. You know, you know the truth be known, you know, uh, I've seen uh, companies with uh, without job descriptions, without without any uh, reason for, for younger employees to stay. Today, over 50% of the workforce is from the younger generations. And we need to be adapting to that smartly and use that critical thinking because it's just not good enough to allow toxic conditions to, to uh, continue in, in these companies. Right. And some managers think, you know, they think that's okay. I simply don't share that view. How can people find more articles from you, like like your fewer teachable moments article? Is there a website that they can go to, or is there a way that they can reach out and contact you? What's the best way to get a hold of you? So my website is called tacticware.com. You can go to that. Uh, most of the articles are uh, uh, listed at the bottom. I've written a lot of articles over the years. Some are on LinkedIn, some are in trade journals, but you know they're they're written so people understand them. And it makes good good sense. You know, there's a lot of educated people with poor judgment. And if you think about that, it's it's more about the wisdom than it is the, the word flow. And and to me, it's about using common sense to address the challenges of your company. And every company's got challenges. If, if they tell you they don't, you know, I would question that. Yeah, exactly. It's about being fair and, and decent to your people. But also, I look at a lot of the senior management in these companies, and because they are tactically driven or they are uh, just task-driven uh, companies, they work themselves to death. You know, and if you're a C-suite guy and, you know, you're working 80 hours a week just to keep, your, keep afloat, you know, maybe there's some challenges there you ought to address. You know, and it happens. Yeah, no doubt. You know, but sometimes third parties, you know, are like myself and there's other great consultants out there that that do a good job that will tell you the facts and based on facts, not subjective thoughts. And that's where a lot of people get in trouble, subjective criticism. I'd rather deal with the facts, let them stand on their own. And if they don't agree, well, that's their prerogative. But you generally have... (laughs) Most, most people I work with are very tuned in to, they want to get better. You know, they, yeah. they want to get better at what they do. They want to understand the people and understand the employees are their greatest asset. 100%. Paul, this has been just a delight to have this conversation with you today. I really appreciate you coming on to the Titans of Food Service podcast. I think you have given the listeners and viewers of this podcast a lot of great nuggets. And this is power packed with a lot of um, very valuable information. So I just want to say thank you so much for joining me. And uh, we'll have to do it again. Let's do it again, Nick. As always, pleasure. 